Saturday, March 4, 1933, was the 32nd presidential inauguration. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's 20-minute inaugural address was celebrated for the quote that we all know today. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, is what I always heard as a kid. Essentially saying, be brave. This quote has become the linchpin of modern cliches. Yet, during the time of the Great Depression, this was undoubtedly inspiring. For further historic insight, we need only listen to the next few lines of the address. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed effort to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. Fear is paralyzing. We're being told to fear that paralysis of indecision, to look it in its face and surmount it, or climb it. This is what we're going to further address as bravery. So not only is FDR asking us to be brave in times of trouble, but to trust in the brave. Contextually, he was asking the American people to put their trust back in the government and what little money they had left back into the economic institutions. While the Great Depression didn't truly end until World War II, this was the decision made in the time of paralysis and fear. On today's entry of Climbing Yourself, I won't be asking you to trust the government, but instead to trust yourself. We'll be trying to better understand the topic of fear from both an emotional and biological point of view. After that, we'll be having a conversation with a good friend who has, to say the least, an interesting relationship with fear. We debunk the traditional perceptions of bravery, talk about psychology, privilege, authenticity, and so much more. Thanks for tuning in. This is Climbing Yourself, Grappling Fear. I have a specific fear of parties and crowded rooms. Not just the claustrophobia of the event, but more specifically, the expectation to interact with others. I open the door and I'm hit with a wall of heat. Inside this crowded, sweaty house, there seems to be this mutual feeling of excitement as the music blares. Almost like an inside joke that I don't understand but I'll continue to act along. As my friends all split off into different directions, I watch. They get drinks and they talk, moving along from group to group to group. It's like a living organism, churning with different parts, friendships, lovers, rivals, each part together, but so drastically different. I can't help but to think how my friends are part of this organism, smiling, laughing, and getting drunker and drunker. Even when I try my best, Acting like I'm in on the joke, 
I still feel separate. Like everyone else is part of this organism, but I'm only interacting with it. Trying not to get washed away in the sea of half-interested personalities. Always moving. I wish I could describe the immensity of this social organism, but I dissociate. Looking at the faces around me, I feel panic. To leave is to upset my friends, but to stay is to feel so alone while surrounded by people. I leave. The churning organism spits me out. I step out of the wall of heat, quickly shutting the door as I back out. I turn around to the fresh air of a cool night, and I walk home. This was at some random party on some random night in Ronert Park, California. I tried explaining to my roommates in so many different ways, but they just didn't quite get it. I just gave up. I knew I wasn't alone with this problem, but it's just hard to understand, so I thought a bit of research might help. The research I did was brief, yet incredibly intriguing and applicable. I'll jump right into it. The basic fear response starts off in the primal part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala triggers the adrenal glands that then send stress hormones throughout the body. Adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine. Adrenaline and norepinephrine increase your heart rate and your blood pressure, while cortisol releases sugars into your bloodstream for increased energy. During this process, blood rushes away from your frontal cortex that's associated with logic, higher thinking, and social activity. Now this is the comically tragic red flag that a lot of us run into. Not only is your brain misinterpreting a threat like a class presentation or a crowded party, it's then shutting down the one part of your brain that helps you socially function or think at a higher, logical level. Because of school, work, and the stresses of living in a demanding society, we're bombarded with these fear signals. Naturally, the hormonal levels of adrenaline, norepinephrine, and cortisol are meant to spike and go back down, but what happens when it goes unchecked is we see a spike in a plateau, causing depression, anxiety, and a multitude of health issues. Our brain chemistry is designed to help us go through evolutionary threats like bears and mountain lions, making fear useful, but the fight, flight, or freeze responses are basically ineffective to the social and emotional fears at the forefront of our modern worlds. This delineation between evolutionary and modern fears is something I would discuss in the upcoming conversation with Gregory Mears. As I stated beforehand, Gregory has an interesting relationship with fear. He heavily, heavily weighs the positive and negative possible outcomes to his actions. But at the same time, he's the type of guy who's never afraid to speak his mind. He speaks in these wild metaphors and analogies, letting his emotions, thoughts, and ideas flow without fear of judgment. I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to speak to someone about the topic of bravery. But what happened was unexpected. When were times where you were brave, Gregory? That's a great question. Let me look it up. I wrote these down because they were particularly hard. Yeah, no, it's all good. Take your time. I, I guess I'm trying to figure out if I... Okay, here, I guess here it is. Is I don't... Uh... I'm trying to think about times where I was brave to share. <laughs> Drawing blanks, dude. <laughs> I, 
I don't think I categorize. It's one of the few things I really don't have any room for in my brain. Mm-hmm. I probably should ask my mom because I think she often says, like, that was really brave. And I immediately dismiss her. This question that seemed to be the quintessential point in an interview about fear was a lot harder to answer than either of us had anticipated. But Greg had a good point. Is it that we always downplay and dismiss our own bravery? Or has it become an antiquated word, so commonly associated with movies about superheroes and gladiators? Think about it. When's the last time you've heard someone use the word bravery as a self-descriptor? When I, when I hear bravery, I think of like Roman times or like sword battles. Yeah. Like I describe you as ballsy, for sure. Yeah, sometimes I feel ballsy. Other times I'm like, meh. Yeah, not that personal, like back and forth, but... Out of all the people I know, I'm like, you are you fall in the ballsy category for sure. Thank you. Um, but I wouldn't describe you as like brave necessarily because... Yeah. It's such a formal word too. I think it invites that you're doing something good for people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I'm> totally not. <laughs> I'm usually just kind of wiling out, jumping around. Yeah. And you definitely would if you had the opportunity. We just don't have that many opportunities. Yeah. We're not like um, saving cats from trees or anything. Yeah. Maybe in a different country. But I feel like where we live, it's like everything, everyone's doing the same thing every day and everything's so like mellow that the only way to invite real interest into our lives is having Mateo be like, oh, wow, look at that tree. But I can knock it over. And we're like, what? <laughs> Most people climb it. And you're like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think we don't have a lot of primal material fears. Like people have phobias. Spiders creep me out. But like that doesn't control my life as much as anxiety does nowadays. We're on Maslow's hierarchy of like we have shelter and food and a loving family. So like what what we fear is not lions. It's not starving. It's, for a lot of us, it's not being able to pay the pay rent. For some people it is. But for us in specific, it's a bit more anxiety-based fear. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how high up on that pyramid I am. I would like to think everyone has the same amount of fear potential and you just apply it to different things. If you have lions around, like that's a reasonable thing to focus on. But since I don't have any really reasonable things to put my fear into, it's all social or existential. It's like the very peak of like, these things barely matter. Mm-hmm. In 1943, Abraham Maslow theorized that all human needs are prioritized and fall into step with the five-rung pyramid. These five rungs start at the bottom, then move to the top. Physiological needs, safety needs, love and belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization. What I'm getting at is the premise of privilege. Someone struggling with basic needs such as food, water, and safety spends less time fearing their lack of self-fulfillment. Being lucky products of relative privilege ensures that our most concerning fears are abstract rather than concrete. This makes it perhaps harder to point out a single instance of bravery. So I think people always try to downplay their bravery because it's like, oh, I wasn't like a gladiator. Yeah, but it's not about the act. It's about your personal fear. And that's why I find myself being mad at myself when I'm not brave rather than being proud for being brave. Mm hmm. Because my bravery instances are so small, like talking to a waiter. If I don't do that, I feel like, oh, you are a coward. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Some major like social fears and social anxieties are sometimes the hardest to overcome, especially during like the pandemic because we've had so much time without talking to people. So like those fears get bigger and that mountain gets bigger. And then you might be able to talk to like a waitress once, but that doesn't mean you overcome the whole thing. Because next time I go to Lacadia Pizzeria, I'm going to have anxiety when the waiter asks me a question. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing about the idea of conquering fear. Sometimes you become so familiar with a scenario that you no longer fear it. Mm -hmm. Like snake handlers don't or are not afraid of snakes at all. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that as soon as you do it once, you've conquered the fear. There might be some snake handlers that take years before they're like, I'm fully okay. Yeah, exactly. Like That kind of goes back to the conditioned responses. Right. You might be able to hop back up on the horse. That doesn't mean you forgot when you fell off. It's going to take like three or four times to be like, okay, I trust this horse again. And not only the horse or the obstacle, you trust yourself. That's the biggest thing that I've learned with confidence and fear is like, I have to learn to trust myself. Yeah, it's a lot more focused on how you respond to things than how things come at you. After discussing these topics of confidence and trust, the next question I asked Gregory was in a similar vein. So what kind of scenarios do you find yourself in? Not exactly displaying traditional bravery, but trusting yourself in the face of doubt. When I don't know what to say to someone, the only opportunity, like the only option I feel like I have is to say what I think, because it's going to be better than me trying to say what I think people should say. Mm -hmm. And I think externally people go, that's really brave. He's being himself. And for me, it feels like a last resort because I, you know, it's better than just stumbling and saying nothing. So I'll say something absurd. And mm -hmm. then the other people are like, wow, you really said what was on your mind. Most people would have, you know, put a filter on that. And I'm like, oh. I think that's brave just because rather than the indecision and the paralysis, you picked decision. You made something. Sometimes it might go great when you say what's on your mind to somebody. Other times, not so much. But I guess that's part of bravery is accepting the outcome. Yeah. It's odd because it fights with my, I want to say the things that please other people. Like I want people to like me. But if you put me in front of like a really specific type of sorority girl, I'm definitely going to say like the things I normally would say. And they'll be like, we don't talk about that. And I'll be like, oh, well, I just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think the funny thing about that is that you'll say those things and then you kind of realize when you start saying things you're thinking about. If someone doesn't react positively to it, you're like, maybe you're not someone I even wanted to impress in the first place. I agree. I think for uh, social fear, which is kind of my main expertise, because I explained that I don't have a lot of other real fears. The solution for that, or at least a good place to start, is with authenticity and letting yourself react to things the way that you would. Not only can you surprise yourself, but it also just almost always goes smoother. Trust in yourself. Is that cliche? Trust in yourself? It probably is. I'm sure. I hear it a lot. It's pretty good advice, though. I was told be myself a lot around like 18 because mm -hmm. um, I was always really anxious. And I'd look at people who didn't seem anxious and be like, oh, how do you interact with other people? And they're like, I just am myself. And that bothered me for a long time because being yourself is the answer. Like if you want, like if you want me to put it in two words, it's be yourself. Yeah. I don't know if that's three words, compound word. <laughs> uh, no, but, it totally is the answer. Yeah, but. It's, it's a, a, lot of steps it's a long it. journey to learn how to be yourself. Yeah, that's like, climb this mountain. Yeah. Like, cool, man. Yeah, I guess that's what I have to do to get on top of the mountain. That's the premise of what I'm doing for this podcast is I don't want to tell people how to conquer fears because the answer is always corny. The answer is always a cliche. And I hate cliches, but they're right. Like, the just do it one step at a time. Like, it's going to be all right. All that shit. It's right. nothing to fear but fear yourself. <laughs> cliche but right <laughs> yeah i guess the the value of art is explaining cliches in such a fleshed out way that people truly understand them 
Yeah. I just want people to understand fear, understand their fear and be willing to talk about their fear. Because I, f- I think the second you verbalize your fear it becomes a bit less scary. Yeah, that's true. On the note of how to overcome fear in a different way than just doing it is I like to split fear into either passive or active fears. Okay. So like a passive fear for me is having my car broken into. Yeah. Um, it's just something I think about when I'm in bed and I hear a sound outside. And then an active fear is something where you have to go and do the thing instead of all you have to do is not worry about it. Things where you have a bit of control over scenario. The advice of just do it to a passive fear is, I would say, pretty silly. Yeah, it doesn't apply. Right. Because the, oh, just don't worry about it is then the classic meme of like, hey, that didn't help at all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But if you're afraid of talking to a waiter, I mean, incremental steps is the way to go. But at the end of the day, you just got to do it. You'll fall on your face. You'll be awkward as hell like one or two times. And you'll be, oh, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think socially a fear of failure uh, drives most of the other social fears. Because if you're okay failing... Mm-hmm. The same way a little kid is, they keep practicing and then they get their social skills. Yeah. Where if you think, if you expect out of yourself to already be good at something and you don't try because you're afraid to fail, you'll never improve, thus extinguishing the fear of being bad at it. Okay. Greg and I talked for another two hours, but I honestly couldn't have summed it up any better. There's something about the innocence of a child and their ability to try new things. They aren't controlled by this fear of failure because they have very little concept of embarrassment or ego. They're just having fun. But for some reason, as we grow older, we become crippled by this fear of failure. We act as if the world around us will collapse if we fall flat on our face. Perhaps that's the ego talking. Maybe it's the developed brain overreacting to a threat. Whatever it is to you, it's worth climbing. I want to give a special thank you to Gregory Mears. If you like the wave he's on, you can follow his art curation account on Instagram at the.changecommunity. And once again, thank you for listening to today's entry of Climbing Yourself, Grappling Fear.